Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. How was your Thanksgiving? I'm willing to bet it was better than mine. You guys heard about this uh, COVID-19 thing that's going around? Yeah. We uh, got to Seattle and then COVID struck and we turned around and drove home. So it's a little disappointing, but uh, we had a good time, just the five of us laying low and bend, but uh, <laughs> kids were kind of bummed. So that's a good way to start. Uh, happy New Year. It, <laughs> Um, For the past several years, you'll know that Antioch has joined with uh, millions of other Christ followers around the world, walking through the seasons of what's known as the church calendar. And uh, it looks something like this. You've seen this before, but the idea is that we order our worship around um, the story of Jesus and his people the Christian story, the story of Christ and his kingdom. And so today, I say Happy New Year, it's the first day of a new cycle through the church calendar. Um, So real quickly, we start uh, with the season of Advent, which is all about the anticipation of Christ. And then uh, we move into a time of celebrating Christmas, which is about the incarnation of Christ. Uh, Then we move into the season of Epiphany, which is about the revelation of Christ. And then sometime around late February, early March, we enter into the season of Lent, which ultimately culminates in the crucifixion of Christ uh, that we observe on Good Friday. Uh, Then we celebrate Easter, um, the triumphant resurrection of Christ. And then towards the end of the spring, the end of the month of May, we celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit and the ascension of Christ. And then uh, we move kind of into the second half of the year, which is known as ordinary time. Um, And so we uh, begin this journey again today, and uh, I'm stoked to do it together um, for the next six months from now until uh, end of May, beginning of June. Um, So in addition to the church calendar, this last year we also tried something new in... um, following the life and teachings of, of Jesus uh, in a more intentional way through using a tool called the lectionary. And um, the lectionary is a collection of readings that are appointed for each Sunday as the church worships. And so the idea of a lectionary goes way back to the earliest days of the Christian church um, and even to its Jewish roots, pre-Christian roots, Um, In the synagogue, as the people of God would gather, there would be set texts from the law, from the prophets, from the Psalms that God's people would read together every time they came together. And so there's a bunch of different lectionaries, but the most commonly used one is called the Revised Common Lectionary, and it's the one we are using as well. It's basically a three-year cycle of scripture readings that's designed to bring a congregation through the grand narrative 
of the gospel. And so one of the cool things about preaching the lectionary is that uh, it ensures that a particular congregation finds themselves engaging portions of scripture that they probably wouldn't otherwise. Um, or in other words, we end up uh, coming to the text in specific passages that the pastor would never choose, which is good for everybody. <laughs> it's good for me, it's good for you. Um, and we're not constrained by the personal choices or preferences of a particular preacher. And so it really is a way to encourage us to uh, engage the whole counsel of God's word. And so this year, we are going to once again be using the lectionary as we walk through the various seasons um, of the church calendar. And so the Revised Common Lectionary has four scripture readings for every Sunday. There's an Old Testament reading, a psalm, a gospel reading, and a New Testament reading. And what we're going to do is to focus in on one of those readings each week, um, and we're going to break it up according to the season that we're in. So during this season of Advent, we're going to be focusing on the Old Testament readings, which are mostly um, readings of the Old Testament Hebrew prophets. And then uh, after Christmas in the season of Epiphany, we're going to focus on the, on the gospel readings, which are from uh, the gospel of Luke this year. And then uh, during the season of Lent, we'll be in the Psalms. And then in the season after Easter, we'll be in the New Testament, which is uh, from the book of Revelation this year. So that's something to look forward to. Um, now here's the thing. You don't need to remember any of that. This is kind of pastor stuff that I geek out on. I just want to, I just want to let you know that we're kind of beginning a journey together, and I'm excited about it and really trusting that the Spirit of Jesus is going to lead us as we walk forward in faith and obedience to him. And so, um, so we're going to be focusing on the Old Testament readings during the four Sundays of Advent. Now, Advent, if you don't know, uh, comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming or arrival. And so um, it's the time where we anticipate the coming of God in the world, Jesus' arrival in human history. Um, now, Advent occurs during the period of our calendar year, kind of these November, December months, when days are getting shorter and shorter, and nights are getting longer and longer. And that's intentional. That's something about the place that we find ourselves as we enter into this story. Each day right now is a little shorter than the last. Each night is a little longer. Each day is a little darker. It all moves towards December 21st, the longest night of the year, where we'll gather here that night for a time of acknowledging the pain and brokenness within ourselves and within the world of sitting in a time of lament, seeing one another and turning all of that towards God in prayer. And so this is part of what Advent is about, acknowledging the reality of where we are and what we see when we look at ourselves, when we look at each other, and we look at the world. Now, the trick for us if that's part of what Advent is, is acknowledging pain, brokenness, loss, and practicing lament and repentance, it's not real Christmassy, is it? The rest of the world is celebrating Christmas, and here we are as the church trying to enter in to this season of Advent. Like, it's been Christmas at Costco since, like, July or something like that. 
right? And in fact, even uh, two days ago when our family was driving out to chop down our Christmas tree, I'm like, I'm going to put on an Advent playlist. And we got like two songs into it and everybody's like, why are we listening to these sad songs? Shouldn't we be listening to something happy and Christmassy? And um, it's hard being a pastor's kid sometimes. <laughs> so you got to give the people what they want. <laughs> but there is a tension there, right? Where everything around us is going, it's the most wonderful time of the year, and we want to start singing the happy songs and joy to the world and all that kind of stuff. But the calendar doesn't start there. It doesn't start with the good news. It starts with the reality that we are people in waiting, that we are people who are looking forward to or longing for a better day. That things aren't yet the way they ought to be. That I'm not yet who I ought to be. The world isn't the way it's supposed to be. And so we wait. And so Advent is a season marked by waiting, longing, anticipation. It's a time where on one hand we look backwards and we identify with the story of Israel. We identify with God's people in the Old Testament as they are in various stages of captivity or slavery or exile, and they're longing to be brought home. They're longing for God to show up and send his anointed one. And so on one hand, we reenact the story of Jesus by starting before his birth and going, what was it like for those people then? So Advent, we look back. And we identify with Israel in their waiting. On the other hand, Advent is also a time of looking forward. We look backward not only to Christ's first coming, but we look forward to Christ's second coming. Because it's actually not that hard for us to imagine what it must have been like for Israel. To find themselves living within a broken world and things hadn't gone the way they were supposed to. And life was way harder than they thought it was going to be. But there was this hope. There was this promise. There was this story of redemption and reconciliation that they believed was true. That one day things are going to change. That wasn't just Israel's story back then. That's our story today. So as the church of Jesus, we live between the advents, between Christ's first and second coming. And in many ways, as we look backward towards his first coming, we gain the confidence to move towards the second coming with hope that just as Christ came, just as God promised once long ago, we know that he will also come again to make all things new, including us. So Advent's awkward. It's the time between the times. It's the already and the not yet. But it's realistic, because that's where we live pretty much every day of our lives. And so our text this morning from the Old Testament reading is Jeremiah 33. And the setting is, this is some 650 years before the time of Christ, but God's people, Israel, had been sacked by Assyria and Judah. The kingdom in the south has been destroyed by Babylon. And so all that to say God's people, their land, their community, is a mess. Their dreams and their hopes have been dashed against the wall. And then, in the midst of all of the, the pain and the brokenness and loss that we find in the book of Jeremiah... 
there's this voice of hope, this voice of promise. Verse 14, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. And so we go, well, that sounds like good news, right? That there's a promise, that there's a day coming, there's something to look forward to. So at first reading, it sounds like good news, and it is, but to really get it, we have to zoom way out. Where's Jeremiah as he's writing this? Well, he's sitting in prison. He's looking out the window, and everything has been destroyed, All their most important and sacred buildings have been leveled and pushed up against the walls of the city to be used by the Babylonians as ramps so that they can invade and destroy what's left. That's the context in which this voice of promise and hope emerges, that everything is broken. Now, the days are coming is a loaded term in the Bible. Make note of that. The days are coming is similar to when we read the words once upon a time. When we read once upon a time, we know that what we're about to read is what? A fairy tale. Good. It gives us a clue as to what kind of literature, what kind of narrative is in front of us. When we read the phrase, the days are coming in the Bible, that gives us a clue that we are engaging what's often called apocalyptic literature. And don't think just doom and gloom when you hear apocalyptic. Apocalyptic has to do with revealing. And it oftentimes has to do with this thing that the Bible calls the day of the Lord, the day when God shows up decisively in human history. It has to do with the future. And so he says, there is a day coming... So pay attention. I'm not just talking about maybe tomorrow or something like that. He's saying the day is coming when I will fulfill the good promise. I love that phrase. The good promise I made. God made a good promise to his people. And what is that promise? Well, real quickly, to understand it, we would have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We'd go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where as God has created this good world and invited humanity to live with him in it in right relationship to himself and and themselves and the rest of creation, humanity rejects God and his way of doing things and chooses instead to be their own gods, to be their own kings. They choose to believe the lie that God isn't trustworthy, and as a result, they're cast out of the presence of God. But then in Genesis chapter 3, we get the very first messianic promise. We get this uh, declaration in the form of a curse to the serpent. He says to the serpent in Genesis 3, Cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put an enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Were you able to find that painting? You may, have, may remember this from a couple of years ago. It's one of my favorite pieces of 
Advent or Christmas art by Sister Mary Remington, a, uh, a nun in Colorado, I believe. And she depicts this beautiful scene where Eve, the mother of humanity, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, would one day meet. And the serpent, who God pronounces as cursed, its head is finally crushed by the seeds of redemption that are planted within Eve's womb, or Mary's womb. The good promise that God made goes all the way back to then. That yes, things are broken. Yes, humanity is sinful. Yes, the world is falling apart at the seams, but that's not the way the story is going to end. One day, I will show up and I will make things right. And I'll do so through coming into the world through a woman. This beautiful story that unfolds years and years later. So this is the good promise that God has made, that he's going to make things right, and he's going to use this nation called Israel as, <clears throat> as, a, as a conduit of his grace and blessing, not only to his people, but also to his enemies. In verse 15, Jeremiah goes on and says, In those days, recounting the good promise of the Lord, In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line, and he will do what is just and right in the land. So as you get to know some of the biblical authors, and specifically the Hebrew prophets, you'll notice that they have their individual styles and for Jeremiah, what you notice is that he often draws from the world of nature, the world of God's creation, when communicating God's word to God's people. He's regularly referring to plants or to animals or various aspects of the created world to communicate God's word. And so in this passage here, he uses the image of a new seedling that's growing up out of a dead stump. Maybe you've seen something like this walking through the woods, which in and of itself is such a beautiful it, not just an image, but a beautiful symbol, right? A powerful metaphor for this idea of redemption, that out of death will come new life. Uh, by the way, that's why we made our Advent table out of a uh, tree stump. Couldn't think of a more appropriate way to set this up. Thanks to Brandon Lambert for cutting down a tree for us. Um, <laughs> We all have places in our story that could be illustrated by this new seedling sprouting out of a dead stump. We all have places where out of some of our deepest loss or pain, something new has sprouted up. Like maybe you'd say, I never would have found the job or the spouse or the home that I have and I love now if I wouldn't have lost the one that I thought I wanted before. Something had to die, a dream or a relationship or whatever it was, something died and it, it hurts, 
but out of that death grew new life. And so new life often takes roots in the pain of loss. And that's an encouraging and inspiring idea. But the point that Jeremiah is making is actually much bigger than that. He's not just saying, so look on the bright side of life and try to find the silver lining. He's not just talking about having a positive attitude that things are going to work themselves out. When Jeremiah says that a new branch is coming, notice that the word branch is capitalized. It's not just talking about start a new chapter, turn over a new leaf, whatever that means, right? Saying there's a branch coming and that branch has a name. The truth is, without a capital B branch, there's not a whole lot that would cause us to be hopeful. Without a capital B branch, I don't know that we have a lot of evidence that things are going to work out in the end. In fact, most of the time it feels like the world's just falling apart, these past couple of years especially. And I don't know any compelling argument from the world of science or history or philosophy that would give me a good reason to say that yes, ultimately human history is headed for redemption. That yes, there's going to be a happy ending of the story. How would we get to that conclusion? Without a capital B branch. So God's good promise is that one day he'll send a snake-crushing king. That one day this branch will grow up out of the dirt and change the trajectory of human history forever. Of course, that capital B branch, that snake-crushing king, is Jesus. Don't forget, it's Jesus. As modern-day U.S. American readers, we're going to miss the prophetic edge that these words would have. But when Jeremiah prophesies that one day this new king from the line of David is, is going to show up and he's going to do what is just and right, he's saying that then there will be the true king that we want and need, which is to say the king we have right now is not the true king. We may think he is. The king that's currently sitting on the throne, we may think he's either the answer or he's the problem. And Jeremiah is saying, he's not the branch. And so this was a jab at power. This was a subversion of empire, saying, it's not the king, who in that time happens to be Zedekiah, but it could be whoever, that we, just like Israel, would be prone to place our trust in. Jesus is the branch. Jesus is the snake-crushing king. Jesus is God's Messiah. And so we look to him, we trust him, we follow him, not some earthly king, not some politician, not some party, not some 
uh, even social movement that we trust. This is the thing that's going to make the world right. We trust in Jesus. So the most important thing we see in this discussion about God's good promise is who the Messiah is. The Messiah is Jesus, but the next most important thing is that we see it, what the Messiah brings. Let's look at verse 14 again, or 15 again in the NRSV. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So most important, who is the Messiah? Secondly, what does he bring? The Messiah brings justice and righteousness to the land. Justice and righteousness are words we talk about at Antioch a lot. And they're central not only to our church's vision and mission, but the way we understand the character of God and the message of the gospel. And there's obviously a lot of really confused conversation in our culture about this idea of justice. If you spend five minutes watching mainstream media or following social media trying to understand what we're talking about when we talk about justice, then no wonder you're confused. So I've done this before, but let me just again show you this biblical paradigm that's nothing new or progressive or liberal or anything like that. In a biblical worldview, think about it this way, truth and justice are two sides of the same coin. So when we talk about truth, we're talking about the way things are. When I speak the truth, I am speaking in correspondence with reality, with what is. And if, the, if what I'm speaking doesn't correspond to the way things are, then that's not truth, that's a lie. Justice corresponds to the way things ought to be. Truth corresponds to what is. Justice corresponds to what ought to be. And both are rooted in the character of God. And therefore, neither are optional or peripheral to the gospel of Jesus or the mission of the church. Think about it like this. Truth and justice are a pair of lenses through which we see the world and perceive reality. With one eye, we see the way things are. With the other eye, we see the way things ought to be. And the bummer is that at least for me in the white evangelical tradition that I've been brought up in, we love the idea of truth. We're committed to the truth of God's scripture. We're committed to being people who are devoted to the truth. And that's good. I don't want to lose that at all. But we're blind or have been blind to the idea of justice. We've tried to build a faith of following Jesus with one eye closed. And it's no wonder we get so far off track at times. God calls his people to view the world through both lenses simultaneously, which, let's be honest, that's a little tricky if you've lived your whole life with one eye. You get used to it. 
It does dictate the way you perceive reality. But once you have both eyes open and both lenses in focus, you learn to see the world in a whole new way. Both what is and what ought to be truth and justice. Which is why we're always going to be a church that talks about both truth and justice. Not everybody likes that. Some of you are even annoyed that we're talking about it again right now. And I hope you understand that saying, yeah, yeah, we keep focusing on justice. When are we going to get on to the other things? Is exactly like saying, yeah, we keep focusing on truth. When are we going to get on to other things? We've heard enough truth. Now let's talk about... <laughs> We've heard enough justice. Now let's talk about... We never graduate or move on from the pursuit of justice. It's how God in Christ teaches us to see the world. And so the whole point is that 600 years before Jesus comes, when God reminds his people of this good promise that one day the Messiah will come, this is what he says. This is how you will notice this is what you will see when you see the Messiah and how you will know. Look for a king that executes justice and righteousness in the land. When you see that, you are seeing the face of God. And so, of course, when Jesus comes as the promised king, that's exactly what he did. He came. The first words out of his mouth we're a proclamation of a gospel that's good news for the poor, that sets captives free, that makes blind eyes see, that liberates the oppressed. When you see Jesus navigating his life, navigating a broken world as God's promised Messiah, we look at his miracles and sometimes go, hey, sweet magic tricks. Do you know what Jesus was doing? He was doing justice and righteousness. He goes, that's not the way it's supposed to be. There is to be no sickness. So when I see sickness, I heal it. There is to be no more mourning or crying. So when I see mourning, I turn it into rejoicing. There is to be no more threat of life from natural disasters. So when there's a storm, I tell it to be quiet. And there is to be no more death. And so when I see death, I tell it to get up and walk. You see what Jesus is doing? He's living in the world the way things are through the lens of the way things ought to be. The entire paradigm of his kingdom is one of truth and justice. This past week on Wednesday morning, the verdict came in that all three men who were on trial for the murder of Ahmaud Arbery were found guilty. And uh, a lot of times these high-profile court cases are pretty controversial, and people are divided, and the Kyle Rittenhouse case last week, right? Polarized, divided, wherever you follow your news or social media, you probably saw stuff on both sides. Um, with Ahmad, I don't know anybody. Maybe you do, but I don't know anybody who didn't breathe a sigh of relief 
when that verdict came in. There's something in us that just says, yeah, that's the right call. That's the way it should go. That's the way, even though it's got major flaws, our justice system is supposed to do that. It's supposed to do justice. And so we breathe a sigh of relief. Something in us relaxes, and we celebrate these moments. And that's just me. On the other side of the country, no connection to this guy or to his family. Listen to the words of Ahmaud Arbery's mother, Wanda Cooper Jones, the day after the verdict, just this week. Today's Thanksgiving, and my family and I are really, really thankful for the verdict we got yesterday. This is the second Thanksgiving we've had without Ahmad, but it's the first Thanksgiving we are saying we got justice for Ahmad. So today is actually going to be a day of rest. We're going to have a small dinner. We're going to be thankful. We're going to give our praises to God. It's been a long fight. It's been a hard fight. But God is good. To tell you the truth, I never saw this day back in 2020. I never thought this day would come. But God is good. If you can get there, you can get Advent. Ahmaud Arbery's mom knows that God is a good God, that God is a God of justice, and that when we experience even a simple act of justice like a guilty verdict, we're getting a glimpse at how things work when God is king. And so we find hope, we find rest, we find comfort in those moments when things do go the way they should. And at the same time, we know a guilty verdict doesn't really make things right, does it? It doesn't bring Ahmad back. It doesn't erase the reality of the hatred and injustice that plagued this case from the beginning. Things still aren't as they should be. Ahmad Arbery's still dead. And so we have this glimpse of hope, this sigh of relief. And yet, we wait. So that's where we find ourselves as we begin this Advent journey, grateful for the ways in which we've seen God show up in our lives, and yet still desperately longing for the day when the justice of God will heal, renew, and restore the entire world. The final question is, what does it look like to wait well? When we say Advent's a season of waiting, we don't mean a passive, idle kind of waiting. It's an invitation to wait actively. In other words, if we know that when Christ returns, he's going to usher in a kingdom marked by justice and righteousness, rather than sitting back and going, well, I can't wait for that day, one of the ways that we prepare for his coming is by doing what the Messiah is going to do when he comes. 
We wait by working for justice. Here's the beautiful promise of the scripture that we look to at Advent. Truth is what is, justice is what ought to be. The promise of the gospel is that one day they will be one and the same. One day when Christ returns to make all things new, things will be as they ought to be. This is our hope. And Jesus is our righteousness. Christ came, Christ will come again. And Christ comes in all kinds of ways. He comes through the still small voice of his spirit. He comes through the loving fellowship of his church. He comes by inhabiting the praises of his people. He comes in bread and wine. And so we come hoping that we would get a glimpse, a taste of the future in the present. I know it's hard, kids. Don't give up. Help is on the way.